Arthur, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. There's lots for us to be chatting about today. I'm pumped. Likewise, guys. Great to be here. Great content you have out there and happy to add this episode to the archives. Thank you so much. I'm glad to have you here. I want to start out letting you explain it better than we do in terms of what you do, a little bit of your background and what you do at Hillview specifically and who you serve. Sure thing. I appreciate that. So our company, we're a mergers and acquisitions and capital advisory firm. Really what that boils down to is you know, here sell side M&A and capital, but we help companies sell themselves. We help companies secure capital. Uh, my background after law school, I was in New York for about 10 years working in investment banking, so helping companies buy and sell each other, private equity, and that we were buying companies, and then corporate development, so kind of being the internal strategy and mergers and acquisition for a large operating company, and then started Hillview Partners back in 2016 on the thesis that privately held entrepreneur, family, smaller investment group owned companies tend to kind of define it as one to 10 million in pre-tax earnings were poorly represented in the process uh, when they wanted to ultimately sell or secure capital. And so our idea has always been to kind of be in a space of inefficiency where it's a little too small for some of the large Wall Street investment banks, it's a little too big for some of the, you know, called business brokerage firms. Uh, and so that's the only part of the swimming pool we swim in and what we do every day. And we really solved for a lot of the pain points that are usually experienced in that field. But generally speaking, that's kind of what we do and, and who we tend to work with. What's the main reason why people in that, you could call it like bracket of kind of the journey, right? If it's like an A to Z journey, that's some segment of letters kind of in the middle. What are the main reasons why they would likely not do as well kind of on their own or why like having an advisor is just really critical? Yeah, I mean, look, I, candidly, you always say like, Think of the hesitancy of trying to sell your house by yourself, yet a business with a lot more nuance, with a lot more subtleties, idiosyncrasies to the actual operating company, and then all of the kind of nuances and complexity to the process of selling a business, it's a complicated thing. And so it's not so much that we tell that just our swath is not represented. It's just that we've always thought that historically they haven't been represented well because the businesses are big enough, sophisticated enough that they need that kind of level of Wall Street investment banking type of approach to these situations. It's not that different of an approach. and It does require that same level of, of, of nuance and granularity. However, they just haven't had access to it historically. And so there's a few very, a couple of big firms that won't mention their names throughout the country that we compete against in this space, but really they're always historically treated almost like real estate. They, they kind of find the opportunity, they, they puke out the information to a newsletter of 10,000 people and they wait for the phone to ring, where our approach has not always been the case. It's kind of a proactive, similar to what we did in Wall Street on $100 billion deals, right? Is isolating the parties that would be the best counterparties, bringing the opportunity to them, discussing it in detail, you know, separating, as we call it, the, the prospects from the suspect and, and bringing that back down to actionable opportunities. So it hasn't been, so, so we would always be the advocate that anyone selling a business, just like selling a house, should have a representative. I think just this space has not been well represented historically, and that's kind of where we're trying to keep growing our company and, and bring efficiency to that. I think there's a difference too in the value of good representation to somebody selling their business versus somebody selling their home asset. Like there's a, you know, a, a business is harder to sell and the upside is higher when you have really solid representation. Yeah. And look, I will say, if you think of kind of the bell curve of data points on a 
you know, how many offers you would get and where they would fall for a house or a piece of real estate, they're going to be a lot tighter because that market's more mm -hmm. efficient. More people can value it based on whether it's cap rates or just kind of on comps. But for a business, you, know, you could go out there and get an offer that's two to three times as high as another offer. And that's only just the headline number. Then you're not talking about structure, transition times, what happens to the other employees, what happens to the company name. And so you're right, there's more variables, there's more randomness, so to speak, of it, because it's not a very, it's a pretty opaque ecosystem. And so more the reason why if some offers are good, more are better, right? You want as many data points as you can, so you can kind of see where the most kind of pellets hit the mat, if you will, right? because someone might think, because what happens with businesses, a lot of times they sell kind of on an unsolicited basis, right? Somebody reaches out and says, hi, we'd like to offer you X dollars for your company. And if someone else hasn't gotten many other calls for it, they might just say, hmm, that sounds good. That's a lot of money, right? But what could you have gotten, right? On a represented basis, if you ran an actual process, if you had a hundred of those conversations, what could it have been? And so that's the, that's the exercise that needs to be undertaken. So yeah, to your point, Kyle, it's a good point that the data points will be very random until you get enough of them. Then you can kind of really see where the crux is or where the need of all the the offer come in at. I want to get into the specifics of selling a business and, and how to maximize your value. But before that, I want to ask how, why do you think everybody wants to be an investment banker that goes to college? You know what? That was the case when I was in college, uh, you know, stone age, but feels like whatever the, put it this way, right? There's always going to be people that go with the trend of something. There's always going to go be people that just go diametrically opposite of the trend, just because they don't want to be trendy. They want to be contrarian. But I always find the smartest people kind of go where they find the opportunity that best suits their abilities and attributes. And sometimes you're going to be with the trend. Sometimes you're going to be against it. You just have to kind of be agnostic to it. But uh, when it comes down to that, I think people, maybe they watch the movie Wall Street too many times and, you know, they think it's just, you know, big deals and big checks and it's a sexy thing. I mean, it's the same reason why, like, everybody wants to have a startup or, you know, everyone wants to be a multifamily real estate investor or, you know, they like uh, they like things that have a shine to them, that, that has a mystery to it, that there's lots of money to be made. But I think, you know, you peel back that layer in any of our businesses that, that any of the three of us are doing. There's a lot of work in there. There's a lot of lonely nights by yourself figuring this thing out. So, uh, but there is that kind of an appeal just from back in the day, I think. Pinstripe suits and uh, dollar sign suspender. One one thing I had heard you mention on some other podcasts that I listened to, kind of researching this one in more detail, and that relates to exactly what you're talking about now in terms of with whatever you're doing, obviously guaranteed to be less glamorous than you thought it would be just because of the nature of going against the grain in terms of, let's call it just self-employment and entrepreneurship versus having a job where lots is figured out for you. And sure. one thing you said that's super necessary uh, that I heard you say again here uh, before we started chatting on the recording was about obsession. Like you as a founder need to be obsessed with what you're doing to some extent, right? There's a, there's degrees of obsession and maybe there's a, you have, you use it on a spectrum and you're referring to a specific level of obsession when you're referring to it as a positive thing. What was it about, so I mean, first of all, I'll give you a chance to like kind of explain that thesis kind of in terms of like how that fits into your role in terms of the advice you give companies about like all about the role of obsession and then how the obsession for what specifically you do now came about. I would say the idea of obsession just, I think we live in a very competitive world, right? The fact that now you can be on Zoom meetings with anyone in any country in the world at any time and it comes through pretty clear and you can talk to people and do business with anyone, we've created, whether people want it or not, it is a global economy for almost every 
thing we could do in this world that's not kind of you know selling ice cream down the street. And so by virtue of that, it's going to be competitive. And by virtue of that, you have to, in order to be successful in something, it has to be the thing that you are obsessed with. Because if you're not, someone else will be, right? And so what do they say? That the person who walks the furthest is not necessarily the person that likes the destination most, but who likes walking the most, right? Because it's like, you just have to love the grind of whatever it is that you're doing. So I think that, and I don't know, look, you can take it from the perspective of it's something that you're learned or God puts it in you, but we all have something that it is that just kind of gets the brain going and say, wow, this is exciting. This is what I want to do. And I've always said, you know, embrace that, go with it, you know, figure out what that is and just dive into it because that's ultimately what you'll be, what you'll be best at. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I just remember you know, people, you know, whether it was, you know, my dad, for instance, he's a, he's a doctor and he loved it. He loved reading about it, loved learning about it and loved doing it. And, you know, there's elements of every job that are unpleasant, but you, know, you could just tell he was a purist in a way, right? And so because of that, he, I don't think he ever fatigued mentally from the idea of continuing to learn, right? He never said, okay, I'm there and I don't want to learn anymore. But whether it was you know, friends of his or people you'd run into, you'd see these people just, you know, whether it was living for the weekends or just saying like, oh, you know what? I get to retire in 36.4 years and you'd say, what a, what, what a waste, right? Like, yeah, this is a one lap race. Like I only want to do the thing I want to do and I want to do as much of it as I possibly can. And so, and I think that, and that's the only way you'll actually be good at it. I've never seen anyone said, you know, I really hate doing this thing, but I'm, I'm elite at it. It doesn't mean you're going to love it from the beginning, but sometimes just being good at something makes you excited about it. And then you become elite in turn and gain that interest. But anyways, that's kind of the concept there is, we live in a competitive world. Unless you're clawing for every inch, somebody else will be. And the rewards are not allocated proportionately, right? So I, I made a video a long time ago that I said, you know, the, the guy who wins the 100-meter dash at the Olympics is on the Wheaties box. The guy in second place is like shaking hands at car dealerships, right? Like it's, it's not. So the rewards are not proportional. So you really have to be in that upper echelon. And I no no slight against car dealerships like working with them too. But point is you have to be in that upper echelon to get the lion's share of the reward. And right, being fifth at anything doesn't really get you much. So anyway, that's a thought there. And then as it pertains to kind of our particular interest in it, you know, when I got out of law school, this was you know, the world was falling apart in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And so I was trying to get jobs in on Wall Street and literally I'd ask my, my wife was a teacher. And I'd ask her when she got home from school to print out like the top 50 names of the biggest investment bank in New York. And I would just call them all day. I was in the law review back in Rhode Island. And I'd call every single day, all these guys and ask for jobs and see what they were doing. And, you know, it was a weird time, you know, like the phones didn't work at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And I was too dumb to watch the news. So I never knew what was going on. There. But you'd call and call. And then I started learning about, okay, there's these middle market investment banks, there's lower middle market. There's all these kinds of like other participants. And I ended up getting a job at a very small investment bank that was actually a spinoff of American Express, but we only worked with smaller companies. So businesses that were making you know, a couple million dollars a year in profit to $10 million a year in profit. And so they're big companies, but you know, in the grand scheme of the world, not enormous. And what I found and kind of fell in love with was we were working with the people that owned the company. I mean, it was the Bolt distribution company in Hackensack, New Jersey, the software company based out of you know, Maine. Whoever it was that we were representing or working with, it was the person in the room sitting there. They tell you how they built the company, what, what they poured their heart and soul into it. 
And so when we sold the business for them and got them what they were looking for, found them capital, I mean, it was life-changing for them, for multi-generations of their family. You know, if you want to talk about kind of a mental reinforcement to yourself of like, this is good work, we're doing good things. And so I think after that, I just said, you know, I'm not calling JP Morgan anymore. You know, I don't want to work on the $5 billion public company that you know, changes the stock price for somebody. But so I think by virtue of being able to really help kind of the person whose wallet is involved with the business, that level of alignment, that's exciting. And so we've been able to do that. We create tons of relationships. We learn a lot about a lot of different businesses and, you know, the, I always wanted to live in a world where the feeling of victory or defeat was very, uh, you know, tangible, was right there, right? If we do something good, we're going to be a hero. If we do something bad, we're going to be a loser because I want that level of pressure because it will make us perform and we've been able to do it. So that's what kind of creates it because you're obsessed because you're aligned. And I know, look, there's a family is relying on this outcome here. So we're not going to stop until we reach that right outcome. So you combine that kind of level of involvement with the clients with just kind of, I guess, an inherent interest in what we do. And you don't want to sleep much. You want to just keep doing this. It's funny. You can hear the obsession in your answer. I appreciate that. My, my wife wears earplugs at night, but it's good. So I have something that I've told Lewis before and his partner, and I think that it might be a little bit of a misconception on my part, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it or, or your answer or, or correction. But when I think about selling a business, because of I come from an accounting background, I think about selling a, a set of books. Sure. And if, if I was to go in and buy a business, all I would want to do is look at those books and pour over them. When in reality, you know, the, the there's coal or there's wood out there and, and it's real. And it's like, to what degree would you say, and I'm sure it depends, to what degree do people buy books versus buying, you know, the business as it exists in the world, if that question makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you have to think of a, a business as kind of a living organism to some degree, right? And so I know you mentioned you're in, in real estate, but if you thought of the difference between a, you know, a single family house that gets rented every month versus say a outdoor shopping plaza, a big one with different entertainment and this and that, there's a ton of kind of levers and pulleys and stuff like that. And so if you take a business kind of beyond that to say, in many situations, there's even less hard assets and more of relationships and goodwill and things that have been built into it, you really do have to then fundamentally define the business in a correct way to optimize the value that you get. And so what I mean by that is it's our job to kind of craft the narrative optimally when you go out to the market to sell a business. And so what you described as kind of the books is a component of that, right? But we have to kind of define the totality of the business. So we always say businesses are bought for three main reasons. One being the fundamental economics, and so that would be EBITDA, revenue, you know, gro gross profit, other kind of considerations there. The second being the access, right? So what is the access to certain customer bases, to certain demographics, to some certain industry vertical? And the third is kind of aptitude or capability, or there's a proprietary element to a business. You, know, you can have businesses that make one little component piece for fighter jets, Right. But without that one piece, you can't sell, you can't fly the jet. Right. Or it used to be called like the air. We had a company one time that we talked to that did like actuators for airbags uh, in cars. It wasn't that stuff that's causing problems. But the point was like you couldn't finish a car without it. And so some companies have that kind of proprietary element, something very special to it, something that they can do better than anybody else. And to be honest with you, 
at the businesses that we serve in that one to $10 million range, because they can't compete on, call it just pure scale, right? They're not low cost providers. They're not commodity products. They have to have something very special about them to remain profitable at that size range. And so we always say, yes, the fundamentals are a good indication of how the business is performing, but what is the access that they have? Who do they have access to? What do they have access to? And then from a capability and aptitude perspective, what can they do that nobody else can do? What's kind of the, you know, the Buffett kind of durable competitive advantage? So, yeah, so what you're pointing at, Kyle, and we will have people that look at companies and say, okay, it makes X dollars a year. I'm going to pay six times X. We're going to give you 80% of it today and 20%. But it's our job to say, listen, you know, the numbers are a key part of this analysis. However, you need to look at the totality of this to really kind of glean the catalyzing factor that this business can have in the to the acquirer's company. A lot of times, especially if you're selling to a big company, it's going to be their analysis of kind of buy versus build. Okay, I'm a big company. I can just build this thing from ground, you know, from the ground up, or I can buy this company and be way ahead. So what's it worth to you then versus just the pure number? So there's a lot of different variables. It depends who you're talking to, but we want to characterize things as kind of expansively as possible because then it kind of captures all of the quantitative and qualitative consideration. And that makes a lot of sense with kind of the competitive advantage that you outlined. Sure. If you are telling the story, I mean, I'll, I'll walk back a second. You can't tell the story in the context of the potential buyer on an email blast to 10,000 potential buyers because the company wouldn't become the same thing internally for all of them. It, you know, it's certain things are useless to other people and useful to other people just because, you know, value is subjective based on the situation you're in. You're absolutely right. I mean, look, a lot of times the way the best acquirer for a company is the one where it kind of is the missing puzzle piece, right? If you had a company that, you know, sold widgets or provided a particular service to like every end market in the United States except Texas, and then you were representing the company in Texas that did that thing, right? that's immensely valuable to that one company because that's the missing puzzle piece. So try to find those situations because then it's not just purely yield, not just purely dollars on you know, cost and stuff. So you're right. And that's not something that it's a different story to different people. And then there's nuance to it and subtlety to it. So you're right. These things have to be more of a rifle approach than a shotgun approach. I don't think many firms have kind of taken that level of granularity just because it hasn't been the giant deal fees that maybe the billion dollar deals have had historically. I'm curious, you know, you've been doing this since 2016. Have there been big, not just in terms of like things that you've probably learned from like along the way, but anything like big, like culturally, socially, that is fundamentally different, not because like you've just been doing this six years longer and maybe you learned some new things along the way, but like other shifts kind of beyond just your own learnings that come from doing the same thing for a while that are different from kind of how you started out. More so like force changes, I guess, would be a better way of asking the question. And so when you say force changes, like things we've had to kind of shift in our approach because of how the world has evolved? Yes. Yeah. I think that there's... Look, I've done been doing this since 2009, you know, kind of at a, in a different format. And then with this company since 2016 with our current company. But what I'd say is I think there's a lot more, uh, you have to quantify the, the defensive angle of businesses a little bit more than you used to, right? I think back in the day, there were certain companies that figured it would be around forever. Well, it makes sense. They make this thing and no one else makes it, but you really have to, you know, there's a lot of upstarts in every single industry looking to disrupt stuff. And there's no industry immune from it, but I think you have to spell out that story just a little bit more, right? And so why is the good 
there's less assumption being made that something's going to remain good forever. I think we've always kind of taken the perspective on business that and we've always said it from the start, right? I always say business is like wine or business is like milk, right? It's either going to get better or worse with age, but not going to stay the same. And so I think that's been even more important these last five or six years with all of the, you know, disruption and kind of jargon out there, but there's a lot of truth to it that every business is kind of, you need to evolve or you get it, you know, you go extinct. And so that's been, I think, more of a shift in the last few years. We've always kind of harped on it a little bit, but now it's a more integral part of every discussion. I think the durability of a business is far less assumed now than perhaps it used to be. You know, if you look at, if you were in the 90s and you said, what's going to happen to Kodak films or, you know, a lot of these kinds of old time businesses, "Ah, I'd be around forever. It'll figure it out. But doesn't all the time. And so if you think of the value of a business as kind of the discount of all future cash flows, then whatever you can do to make it more confident that those future cash flows will exist, key to kind of the dialogue. That's exactly what I was going to say, is the value of that cash flow changes based on the durability and the, the belief of how long into the future it will go. And that's why the value of the company that makes some widget for F-16s is, you know, discounted at a lower rate because uh, you would assume that product will continue to be bought long into the future. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, if you really think about like the speed of kind of advancements in almost everything, like the iterations just get shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Like think of like a pinball machine from the 1970s and think of, you know, Super Mario Brothers from 1995, like wasn't that much better, right? But think of that same 20 year jump ahead and it's like, light years better. So I don't expect that to keep getting slower. It'll probably go faster, equally as fast. And and therefore, I think the durability is that much more important. So you think that volatility from the disruptive nature of technology and the, the way that, that things move very fast, something like AI coming in and changing the landscape will make investors value cash flows at a lower rate than they would have, you know, say 20 years ago when they kind of have an idea of what the next 20 years will look like because the rate of innovation and technology, et cetera, is is slower. I think that there's going to be a need for a more well-rounded story. And that's what we've always kind of been, you know, focused on is that why is this important? But I think what that will do, what innovation will do is accelerate aggregation or accelerate, accelerate consolidation in industries, right? Where there were certain industries where you could have a lot of small companies. I think the more technology gets invasive in any particular industry, it will necessitate consolidation. But just, you know, think of simple examples like doctor's offices, right? There used to be doctor's offices everywhere. Then you had the need for an MRI machine for orthopedics, right? So you could take MRIs and x-rays and things. So it necessitated more doctors to kind of congregate in the same practice so that they would have access to the technology. Now you have robotic surgeries and whatnot, so it creates more consolidation. So go drive up and down the street and see the old doctor's office and kind of the old house. It's empty now right? because they're all working out of the ambulatory surgery center that's non-hospital, but is still a very technologically advanced thing. And so that kind of permeates all industries. And so I would say is across the board, I think the permanence of, of cash flow is probably being discounted. I don't know if necessarily by a different discount rate. I think people are just looking for more validation of how this fits into a longer term trajectory or a longer term plan, right? So 
that's again, harking back to kind of the capabilities and the access and how does this unlock other doors for us to keep growing and keep growing? How does all of that play into the retiring baby boomer kind of mega transition thesis and the kind of the fundamentals of that? Sure. So look, the, I don't want to get a soapbox, but that generation worked outrageously hard for an incredibly consistent and long duration of time to grow these businesses, right? I mean, you've got, I've heard so many pitches of startups now that are telling me how they're going to sell the business in a year before they've ever even like done the first amount of work, right? I mean, many baby boomer generation, I mean, they grew these businesses for 40, 50 years. I mean, the roots that they planted, because at the end of the day, irrespective of technology, everything is about relationships and human to some degree, right? And so where people have these relationships, where they have these inroads, where they have these clients, you know, that stuff goes deep and it can go generations deep. And so no amount of technological advancement is going to wrangle that relationship out. And so what I'd say is you have this marriage of old school work ethic, relationships, capabilities with companies now looking more technologically ahead, looking more at certain efficiencies and certain scaling. And so it actually serves it really well because it creates, I mean, put it this way, right? Overstock just bought Bed Bath Beyond, the intellectual property of Bed Bath Beyond, right? Not the company, nothing, just the IP. And why is that? Bed Bath and Beyond has been around for a very long time. Overstock has too, to a degree, but it has a brand reputation which can only be created by using years of serving a need. I mean, I said to the other day, like, there's no way that Amazon is not looking at buying Macy's at some point. Like, I have no insight into that, but I have to believe that's the case. You can't recreate, you know, you know, a, a saying, you, you always heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but truer statement of that is you can't teach a new dog old tricks, right? There's nothing you can do to create brand. There's nothing you can do to create longevity that's lasted. So what you have is this interesting juxtaposition of kind of the old and established, the new and, you know, aggressive and looking forward, which is good. That's what young people should do. And so what is necessary and what we do is kind of bringing those parties together, right? And having those discussions and being that bridge of those relationships. Because trust me, I've been in situations where you have an old line business and you have some you know, company that's just in there spitting out jargon and metrics and, and, and acronyms and just you just see their eyes glazing over. And I say, listen, let's talk about the business and let's then build into these concepts. Or conversely, you, know, you can have some of the, the companies that, hey, this is how we've always done it. This is this, that have been more, resistant to evolution too. And so it's our job to bring those parties together. It's our job to kind of paint why these things make sense, why one plus one equals three in this situation. And look, at the end of the day, people do recognize it. And that's why they're smart. And that's why they built the companies that are selling them. And that's why they're buying companies. So I don't see it the same. Some people see it as quite a conflict or, or a problem. And we've seen it as a, a tremendous opportunity and just kind of a natural evolution of how these businesses ultimately flow into larger corporations, newer corporations, and then next generation. Look, there will be a day where people look at the three of us and say, oh, the old timers, this is how they always did it. I can't believe it, you, you know? And so it's, uh, it's just the way nature works to some degree. That's very interesting. In terms of the kind of story you told a second ago, whether or not it's you know a pitch meeting for a company that's pre-revenue and the last slide is their exit within a year or not, I think it is often still a good idea to 
you know, have the idea of an exit in mind just from like a layer of proactivity and certain disciplines that like it enforces on you to, you know, make it not a mess for the next person or other things in addition to that in terms of being sophisticated. What are, even if it's not on your radar or a near-term intention, what are kind of practices or beliefs that you should still keep in mind kind of regardless? Yeah, and that's a very good point. And, and we always say every business will sell at some point. Now, it may just sell to and sell technically. It may just be inherited by your children. It may be sold to a third party, but all businesses, given that, you know, despite our best efforts, we are not immortal, right, will go to somebody else at some point. And so in order to make that efficient process, whether you're selling it or just handing it down, you need to have certain things in place. It's almost like when you say with your house, hey, I'm not moving, but I want this house to be sellable. I don't want it to be this illiquid asset that nobody would understand or it's a mess. And so the same thing with the business is you want it to be financeable. You want it to be sellable at all times. And I think it was, that was referenced, uh, Marcus Limonis had kind of a good framework of thinking about it where he said, people, process, product, or service or whatever it is. And so if you can clearly define people within a business, what their roles are, what their responsibilities are, that there's not just kind of a key woman, a key man risk within the business. If you can define all of the processes who does what? How does the machine kind of start with the raw materials and the sausage at the end, right? And you can define every step along the way. And then what is the product? What is the service? Again, tying back to why something is proprietary, why it's special. If you can define those three things, then a business is financeable or it's sellable. So we always say that those are the frameworks that people should always be pushing for throughout the, the longevity of a business or the trajectory of a business. If I say to you, how does sales work? And you can't give me a very quick kind of, it starts here, this is the funnel, this is how it works. Well, then it's not defined. And if it's not defined, it can't be measured. And if it can't be measured, it really can't be sold or, or financed. Mm. And so and that goes for kind of every component of a business. And so we kind of try to do that whole mapping of a business and see, are there any kind of opaque areas or, or things that are not as well defined as they should be? Whether, again, that's process people or the ultimate product or service. That's why we are really big on EOS. If you're familiar with EOS, it's kind of like a good plug and play that take walks you through that and the, the mapping of the business, for lack of a better term. I mean, probably a great term, just diagramming, conceptualizing all of the important pieces. And it's like a checklist. It's like, you know, if there's a term from that called shared by all, where it's basically like not just maybe the executive or the, you know, the key person can explain the sales process, but, you know, any person within the company there should be a list of 10 questions of like, how do we get customers? What's our ideal customer? Who's the, maybe you meet someone interesting at like a networking event, right? Who's the, and they ask you, who can I connect you to? Like everyone within the company should have the same answer to those 10 questions because it's everything fluid. Yeah, that's a great framework to think of it too, right? Because then everybody's a salesperson, right? Then everybody's an advocate and there's, there's more buy-in, there's more allegiance, there's more excitement about it. So that's a good point. One thing that I think I want to ask you about, people generally understand selling their business like yeah. like people understand selling their house one thing people don't understand until they do it is refinancing their house and you also provide capital advisory services can you talk a little bit about what that means how a business owner can benefit from engaging with you um etc i think people think of corporate transactions from a binary perspective they always think i'm either going to keep all of the equity or I'm going to sell all of the equity. I'm either going to take on all debt or I'm going to run with no debt. And in reality, both capital and transactions really operate on a continuum or a spectrum just as much as, as there's kind of like defined 
transactions. So what I mean by that is you could have a company that's growing, makes, let's say, $4 million a year. And so if a company makes $4 million a year, maybe it's valued at $32 million. Just say it's an eight times multiple of that. Right? And that's just a hypothetical example. Sometimes it could be higher, sometimes not as high. But if it's worth $32 million, if somebody is 65 years old and they say, I want to keep running this company, however, this is kind of the primary asset of my net worth. How do I de-risk to some degree? Well, there's people out there that'll buy a 30% stake. There's people that would buy a 49%. There are banks out there that would provide a loan of $12 million at, at a fair interest rate that you could just amortize over time. It'd be sometimes a non-recourse loan, but it's just purely against the business. And so there's ways of extracting capital from a company in order to kind of take some chips off the table that is appealing. So that's part of what capital is. The other times capital can come in and be an accelerant to the business. But let's say you've you've started a services company that does something for some group of people and you've proven it out over three years and it does well and it makes a certain amount of money. And you say, geez, at this rate, I keep redeploying capital. It's going to take me 50 years to get where I want to get. There's companies out there that will provide growth equity. There's companies that will provide a loan to kind of accelerate the business. As long as you have it kind of well-defined, again, it's about the narrative of if you have this source of capital, how are you going to utilize it? What targets does it allow the company to meet? How does it catalyze that growth, right? And so that's the capital side of things is kind of space in between a full sale of a business or a full not sale of a business. That's what a lot of what the capital works within. So I'd say about 70% of what we do is exits, about 20 to 30% of what we do is capital. Capital takes so many different shapes, forms, and fashion of how it's applicable. It's really, I always say is when we're talking to prospective clients, the conversation is always, what are the objectives? What are we trying to accomplish both from a business perspective? What are you trying to accomplish from a personal perspective? And sometimes someone might say like, I'm done with this business. I want to sell it. And once you have that dialogue, they're the, you know, they see all of the different options and different ways to kind of you know, carve the situation. They say, you know what? This might be a better right. We've had other situations where someone says, you know, I just want to borrow money against the company and do this. And they ultimately look to sell it. So, or look for a joint venture of sorts. So I'd say they, they're more complimentary than it may seem. But I think of capital as kind of everything that's a less than a majority control stake in the business. And that can take the form of equity, debt, or some mixture of both. I think we'll do just a couple of bonus questions and then wrap up so everyone can get to the next thing. One interesting thing I saw on your website is that someone, your COO has your same last name. I don't know if that's a sibling, a wife, a parent, a child. I don't totally know, but what's the, what's going on there and what's been the experience with, or it's just a cosmic coincidence. No, I don't have a, a, a Petropolis. So it's not a short Irish name, but uh, oh, that is my wife. And so she's been our COO really not as involved on the deal side, but more of the administrative kind of infrastructure back back end of the business and helping us grow it all these years. And really, I think the truest you know, confidant I will ever have in my life, which is good. You know, I think I always got the advice of don't do business with family. I, can, I trust you. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of how that shakes out. I am I'm blessed, and I uh, you know I do my cross every day that God's blessed me with a great wife, a woman. It is, and so. She's that person where every single idea that I have, of, hey, what about this next? What do we think about this? This is where we want to go. She's 
as even keeled as you can get about things. And it is kind of that resource. So she helps from a tactical perspective on kind of just the operations of our business, making sure invoicing, billing, and, you know, that the deal are all kind of everything's happening the way it should be. Nothing ever falls through the crack. And then, you know, as, as only, you know, in a small business like ours, you need that sounding board to kind of ramble off all the ideas at the end of the night and which of these are good, which of these are not so good. And, you know, I said, from a very pragmatic perspective, we have a very shared vested interest in, in, in things working the, way, the right way. So that's, that's a good thing. I was about to say, you guys have perfectly aligned incentives. It's, uh, it's hard to find in a partner. Well, I, I'm curious, how do you do your sales, your outbound, you know, finding prospects to, to sell their business? I'm sure at this point you have a lot of referrals and a lot of, but there, you've got to be still hitting the grindstone at, at times. Sure. So I think it was another Alex Hormozy thing where it kind of broke down like the six different ways to sell. And so we had tried paid media. Don't do much of that these days just because the, the nuanced conversation is not something you can really just see on a, a LinkedIn banner, if you will. You know, we do, we think of kind of owned or earned media. We put out videos every week on primarily LinkedIn's our main kind of avenue. And so on our LinkedIn company pages, videos every day that we're putting out, whether it's two main ones, a couple shorts times a week. And so we are doing a lot of that. We then repost it to YouTube and people watch it. And, and it's because it's, you know, it's not the most exciting stuff in the world. So, you know, I wouldn't get your popcorn ready. And if you need trouble sleeping, you may want to turn some of it on. But pragmatic. It's like, hey, how do EBITDA multiples work? How do you sell a business? How do you value things? You know, what does the process actually look like? And so we'd get all these questions on preliminary calls. So we just started creating the content so that when we have the calls, we say, hey, check out the content and you'll, you'll see a lot of these answers. And so that's one way it's just kind of draws people in in that regard. And when you think of the more direct approaches, you know, we do some direct marketing and outreach from kind of our research and analysis. We do what we kind of call affiliate marketing. And so we will talk to kind of attorneys and law firms and CPA firms because they're servicing many of the same clients. And it's a weird thing because a company could be around for 40 years. They have an attorney, they have an accountant, but they've never had someone to talk about deals and capital with. And so that's a space that we fill for many companies. And then lastly, and the thing that works the best as it always does is just goodwill. You know, your best salespeople will always be happy customers and happy clients and goodwill will compound faster than any marketing budget. So look, it's a mixture like in any of our businesses of, you know, we always, I always joke and say we're kind of, we're trolling for Atlantis all day. We're kind of just, you know, so it's a mixture of throwing beers, you know, putting out nets as well as producing. You know, at the end of the day, good results the best thing that is the best marketing anybody could possibly do because yeah. when someone's happy about you they will tell everybody else that they are thrilled with what you've done for them and it works the other way around too right and that's why it's that important to do a lousy job on anything which we do not do so hey event that's the uh it's kind of the the magic i think it's a little bit of everything how long have you been into kind of because i think it's not something i see all too common with kind of your niche how long have you been into the kind of online content, like you mentioned, you know, Iman Godzi, Alex Ramosi, a lot of guys that like, I see, you know, the, the people I hear talking about that most often are like young dudes talking about marketing agencies and like whatever, it's kind of the, the hot thing of the day. So it's interesting that you're also appreciating kind of those same principles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I've learned in business that, you know, what was the expression someone told me it was a bit of a cynical thing where they said there's an ounce of truth in every pound of lie, right? But 
I like to think of it from the perspective that the best strategy for something is always a pastiche of taking certain qualities, certain approaches, and certain attributes from all the people that you respect. Right? It's very easy to just write somebody off and say, oh, it's a scam artist, uh, you know, they just lucked out or this or that. When in reality, when you look at any of those people, I mean, Cody Sanchez is another one. I mean, there's so many of these people out there that I mean, even like, look, a Grant Cardone has, I don't know how he does his business dealing, but he's very effective at getting people to watch his stuff, right? And so when you look at these people, you say, there's something that they're doing that works really well. And this human communication element to it. And so our business has always been kind of an old line relationship-driven business of guys smoking cigars in the back of the country club kind of thing. And I, when I started the business, I said, that's going to be an antiquated approach because businesses are not regional anymore. You have a company that makes a million dollars a year, but it can make that million dollars for chunks of money they're getting from all over the world, all over the country. And so you have to take a similar approach to that. And so we always said we got to get ahead of that and try to bring these things because ultimately, historically, marketing tactics that ultimately come into the mainstream of big, sophisticated companies, they always started off on the fringes, right? So it's like, you see these marketing ideas and it started off with like online courses. It started off with FBA, you know, drop shipping type things, but it's permeating more and more. Now you go on LinkedIn and you'll see corporate attorneys. I'm not saying I'm ever, look, I'm not going to be out there doing TikTok dances, but there's going to be a, this is the means of communication, right? I don't have billboard. This is the billboard, right? This is the way that someone finds out more, learns more about us. It has a warm lead, if you will, the first time we talk to them, a warm conversation the first time. So I think you just have to, you know, I met a guy one time, he was 85 years old and he ran a private equity firm. Everybody that worked for him was like 30 years old. And they said, you know, you have a neat team here. And he's like, that's where the ideas come from. Because there's always someone figuring out a new way to kind of crack the peanut. And he's like, if you're just in the echo chamber, of listening to yourself and telling yourself how smart you are, you, you get old pretty quick. You know, you, you, what worked 30 years ago, and we talk about like the Wall Street movie, pounding the floor and screaming at people, right? you become a caricature if you don't evolve. So it's, it's not, not complete revolution. Like it's not a complete throwing away of the bad, the bad, the old, taking the good of the old, mixing it with the good of the new, ideally that's what's going to work. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we look at anything. We watch anything. If you look through my YouTube history, it's a very strange assortment of uh, yeah. Burt Baccarat playing the piano or uh, you know, some guy named Ham talking about random stuff. So it's, it's an interesting world. Hams is crazy. Hams is wild. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I has 2 million followers and sells a course for 500 bucks a month that, every, that he's got thousands of people buying. So like, there's something to it. And so I always say, look, in this... You know, particularly in this, this polar the, yeah, this is the Hamza who does like the kickboxing and stuff, and yeah, just, yeah exactly. Other things. Okay. Right, hangs out with Iman Gaji and talks. You're either a Jeffrey or an Adonis, like great framework. Yeah, <laughs> but, he, he's grown fast, and yeah. it's like why? Because well, just it resonates. We're right? studying. Like, yeah, yeah, there's an ounce of truth to all of this. So, like, look, I, you know, we live in a very politically polarized world. So people kind of going back to like Plato's Republic, they want the echo chamber, they want the cave, but. I've always said, like, I'm agnostic of that. I never espouse to, I'm a, I have my own brain, I think. I don't espouse to any particular political, I have thoughts that may align with this one party or may align with that party, but there's something you can learn from everybody, right? And so I don't care if it's Kamala Harris or Andrew Tate, right? There's some sliver of something you can learn from every single person that 
even if some people just say, oh, I hate that person, I hate this person. But if they're out there and they're famous or rich or impactful or influential, very few things in this world that happen from pure luck, right? There's always some strand or string of something that works. So, hey, they're not to, you know, I watch plenty of uh, Paul Krugman and Milton Friedman, Anonymous as well, but, you know, you try to take a little bit of everything. Yeah, I think just to touch on one thing that you said earlier about the, the old becomes new. It's like you have this certain class of people who are the entrenched class and they are kind of snickering at whoever is on the fringes. But what they don't realize is that who's on the fringes today is who becomes the entrenched class in the future. And that's just as an ever evolving wheel where you're looking out to that fringe and laughing at them, but they're the ones that, you know, end up doing the thing that really makes an impact and then becomes the the mainstream thing. And then that entrenched class falls away and, and disappears. It does, it's not a, it's not a relevant thing. The challenge with this and this, our generation to some degree is we don't look at enough historical context. Like Mrs. Astor didn't invite the Vanderbilts to the party because they were new money. Right. And then, you know, look at, you know, look at, Teledyne, look at Hextron in the 1950s. It was new, snarky ideas. Then look at private equity, like Henry Kravis and Stephen Schwartzman were kind of these like, I mean, look, and then, you know, the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and now it's, you know, Elon Musk. And I mean, it's just, it's always going to be that way. And so that's the exciting part, right? This is just an ever evolving thing. The river's going to keep going long after we're here. So it's time to- Whether you like it or not. Well, if there, I think that any- person who owns a business and is listening to this podcast and wants to sell is now thinking about you, Arthur, where should, where should they go to find out more, to find you, to get in touch and to sell their business? Sure. So our website is hillviewps.com. So hillviewps.com. We're actually just redoing it. The new site should be out in the next week or so, but that has links on it to our, you know, email, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, our company page, Hillview Partners. In my personal page, that's where that's kind of the crux of our, a lot of our interaction in the uh, in the uh, World Wide Web sphere. And uh, other than that, you know, Arthur Petropolis, I'm at in uh, YouTube. We just started Hillview Partners on Twitter, and just but it's a lot of the same content. But find us, Iris. You know, you know, the one thing I will say in this modern world that a lot of the young guys do that we always take on is responsiveness. Nobody waits. It's not two days before people hear back from us, a couple hours at most. So if anyone reaches out, all of the calls into the company get forwarded to me. All of the emails get forwarded to me. For better or worse, they have to deal with me. And we respond and we talk to people. So if anyone's interested in it, what we say is that it's educational. Part of it is, yes, we want clients. Yes, we want to do business. But we're always here as a resource for people just to have chats on. Because it's just more about getting on radars and people knowing we exist and that we are the subject matter experts in what we do. Because we talk to people today and they're a client five years from now. We talk to some people today and they're a client immediately. But in either case, everything spreads goodwill and ultimately we get the best outcomes for our client. Well, that's an amazing place to uh, to wrap up. Thanks so much.